Welcome to Cato Audio for December 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, economist Adam Smith discusses bootleggers and Baptists. Randall O'Toole evaluates the future of driverless cars. Chris Preble talks about our so-called dangerous world. Neil McCluskey evaluates the changes coming in the ivory tower. And Judge Diane Sykes critically evaluates judicial minimalism. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The Supreme Court will jump in and decide the fate of one of several cases uh, challenging the executive branch's implementation of the Obamacare law, the Affordable Care Act. Here to talk about that is one of the sort of architects of these lawsuits, Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and to talk to about some of the legal aspects, Trevor Burris, a research fellow here at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. So where do we want to start here? The policy consequences or the legal consequences here? Well, maybe we should talk about what the what the case is about. What uh, King v. Burwell is one of four cases that have been brought challenging the IRS's attempt to exceed the limits on the powers that Obamacare gives that agency. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act says that the IRS can issue tax credits, which are really subsidies on behalf of certain individuals who enroll in an exchange, quote, established by the state. The statute is very clear about that. It's repetitive. It repeats that requirement. They have to enroll in, the, in an exchange established by the state uh, it, that, uh, is, that, that, sits, that fits well harmoniously with the rest of the statute. There's nothing that contradicts it. And yet in 2011, the IRS announced that it would be issuing those subsidies in exchanges established by the state as well as exchanges established by the federal government if a state fails to establish an exchange itself. The problem with that is that exceeds the IRS's authority under the statute. It doesn't have the authority to issue subsidies in federally established exchanges. And it even goes beyond that because those subsidies trigger penalties under the law's individual mandate and its employer mandate. So by saying that the that it will issue those subsidies in states with federal exchanges, the IRS is also saying that it will collect those or, or that it will impose those taxes on individuals and employers in states that don't establish exchanges, even though by law, by statute, those individuals and employers are exempt if their state makes that choice. And this is a big deal because confounding the expectations of uh, supporters of the law and opponents of the law, every, all of whom thought that states, all states would establish exchanges, two-thirds of the states have either refused or otherwise failed to do so. So we have 36 states in which, by law, the IRS does not have the authority to spend these funds or impose those taxes, but it's doing it anyway. And so what these four cases are doing is uh, you've got individuals and employers from those 36 states, including two states in their capacities as employer, as an employer, who are challenging the IRS's attempt to impose those taxes and those and issue those subsidies, even though the statute says it cannot. And someone might say, why would they do this? This is a lot of 
the other side, you hear this, well, no one would draft the, the law with this kind of loophole in it. Why would they even do this? Well, the reason they did this is because it's a well-known principle of American constitutional law that the federal government cannot just command states to do things. They can't just say, states, you have to now set up exchanges. That go, that was part of the kind of the first Obamacare case, and it's a very old piece of, of law. What they can do, however, is they can give a carrot. Now, this is sort of how what they do with drinking age, right? There's a national drinking age because of highway funds. Well, when they were drafting this law, they said, we need to make sure states are setting up exchanges, and we can't just tell them to set up exchanges, so we're going to say, you don't get any subsidies for your citizens if you don't set up these exchanges, which seems like a really big incentive. And like I think so much of this law, the resistance to it has surprised them at every turn. The continued resistance to it is com continues to surprise them, and these states still aren't setting up exchanges. All right. So as to the actual uh, problems in the law, and uh, we would argue about how big those problems are in general, but uh, Michael Cannon, you say regularly this is not a suit or these are not suits that are challenging the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. These are suits challenging the implementation of it uh, that is, you argue, uh, goes against the text of the law. Yeah, there's a certain irony involved in these cases, which is that people who generally oppose Obamacare are the ones who are petitioning the courts to uphold it. And the people who wanted to see the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act become law are petitioning the courts to let the president rewrite it or let the president violate it. And the reason for that is this. As Trevor suggested, these are uh, these subsidies and the and the mandate penalties that they trigger are essential parts of the law in the sense that if you want the law's regulatory scheme to work and if you want the the law to prevent health insurance markets from collapsing, those subsidies, those mandates, exist to prevent that from happening. And so, when states refuse to establish an exchange and block those provisions. What they're really doing by, by uh, blocking those subsidies, they are exposing consumers to the full cost of the Obamacare coverage that the law requires people to purchase. You know, the subsidies don't reduce the cost of that coverage. They just shift it from the premium payer to the taxpayer. If those subsidies disappear, the premium payer, the consumer, sees the full cost of all of these mandates and all these regulations and all the hidden taxes in their Obamacare coverage. And what is likely to happen then is they will go to their members of Congress and protest. And insurance companies will say, wait a second, we see an adverse selection death spiral coming because the healthy will uh, opt out of the market first, premiums will go up, and that will keep happening. And there will be tremendous pressure on Congress to reopen the law. And so that is why those who wanted to see this act become law are petitioning the courts to ask to let the Obama administration rewrite it in this way. They don't want Congress to reopen it. And by the same token, those who fought hard for states not to establish exchanges because they wanted Congress to reopen it or asking the courts uh, to uh, make the administration stick to the law. Trevor Burris, uh, one of the th claims that is made by uh, people who are opposing these suits is that uh, Chevron deference is legitimate in this case because there is ambiguity and some sort of deference should be given to the agency's 
uh, charged with implementing the law. Chevron deference is the cornerstone of American administrative law. Uh, as most of our listeners probably know, Congress doesn't spend a lot of time writing the laws of America. They tell agencies to write the laws of America. So when you have a situation where Congress says, go forth and create regulations that try to clean the air, and then, the, and then you challenge the agency that interprets that, uh, you go through this two-step process. You first see whether or not they're actually going against con Congress's explicit intent. So the first step is you say, did Congress actually speak to the issue? And if the agency isn't following Congress, then, then that they're disobeying the law. If Congress didn't clearly speak to the issue, you move to step two, which is whether or not the agency made a reasonable interpretation within the wiggle room that Congress gave them. The problem here for the people who say we need Chevron deference is that this doesn't get them to step two. The, the, the statement is incredibly clear what the law says. And if you look at the history of it, if you look at all the backstory of it, the, the reports put out by Ways and Means and the oversight made this very clear. They knew this was happening or they were just ignorant of it. So you don't get to deference because they are just disobeying Congress. And so you don't even move on to step two. Uh, Michael Cannon, the Obama administration has not argued, at least in uh, its legal filings in this case, that this is uh, a drafting error, that this was a simple mistake that then could be cleaned up. Uh, Jonathan Gruber, who is widely uh, touted as being one of, if not the main architect of the Affordable Care Act, has been sort of, I guess, caught with his pants down, sort of making a bunch of statements that essentially agree with the argument that is being made in King v. Burwell. Right. So uh, on the drafting error issue, it's, uh, it's not a drafting error because the language that limits these subsidies to those who en enroll through an exchange established by the state doesn't just appear once. It appears twice explicitly in the eligibility rules for those subsidies and then another seven times by cross-reference. Every time the statute refers to who is eligible for subsidies, uh, the type of health plans that are eligible for subsidies, how to calculate the subsidies, what premiums to use, how to reduce the, those subsidies if you've got an individual not lawfully present in your household, uh, the premiums used to do that. All of these things are found in the rating areas in which you'll find the plans with those premiums. All of these things are found only, quote, through an exchange established by the state. And so the, the language is actually very tightly worded. There's, there's no mention of federal exchanges. There's no broad language that says an exchange could refer to a state-established state exchange or a federal exchange. It only refers to uh, an exchange established by the state. And that language was added in multiple places in the statute at multiple steps in the drafting process. So one of those explicit mentions was there when the bill was – when a, an antecedent bill where these, these provisions came from – was reported from the Senate Finance Committee. And then the other clearer, more explicit limitation was added, uh, the explicit use of the phrase through an exchange established by the state was added to the subsidy eligibility rules while that bill was being merged with another bill under the supervision of Senate Democratic leaders and White House officials. So they didn't have to use that language, but they did it repeatedly in the statute, repeatedly throughout the drafting process. This was not a drafting error. The statutory interpretation question is, as Michael's pointing out, which makes this case actually a little bit interesting when it gets to the court or more interesting because this is really a case of our side saying it says this clearly. Their side is basically saying 
you have to look at it holistically. You have to look at it how it fits into the whole law and it produces consequences that are clearly absurd. So they couldn't have intended this because the consequence. But statutory interpretation questions, just as a general rule, are not terribly ideological. If you ask the court to say, read the statute, tell me what it actually means, it doesn't always break down along the divisions that we're usually talking about, which is why one reason why I think that some of the the so-called so liberal Supreme Court justices who generally vote together are actually in play here. I mean, Be not, not, not highly in play, but a little well, bit and, in and play. And here's one way to think about that is if you had – and I'll ask you, Trevor, because you're the constitutional lawyer and, and you pay more attention to these things than I do. I'm a healthcare guy. Uh, if you – if someone came to you and said, OK, uh, where, where do you think you'll get more Democratic appointees on the Supreme Court voting against the government? In King v. Burwell, which is a statutory interpretation case, or the challenge to the Medicaid mandate in the, the PPACA that was part of the NFIB case. Where do you think you would have gotten – in which one before – the Supreme Court heard either one. And which one do you think you would have gotten? You would have assumed on, on the King v. Burwell case. On, on a simple statutory interpretation yes. case because the Medicaid case was uh, the Supreme Court going into uncharted territory uh, and striking down a, a condition that uh, Congress placed on federal funds because that condition was seen as being too coercive. And yet you got two Democratic appointees voting with the four Republican appoint uh, – with the uh, five Republican appointees on the Supreme Court to strike down or at least amend that part of the PPACA. King v. Burwell is actually a much simpler and much uh, 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 smaller step to take. Now, isn't part of that just the fact that this is the court doing its job as a court, like a regular court, rather than the Supreme Court looking at a statute and saying, this is this is clear, this is not clear? The, exactly. Courts in, in, ID, in our version of what we think the size of government should be, shouldn't often be deciding questions that take away people's health care or because they should generally what a court does is say, hey, what does the law mean? Uh, we'll look at the law, we'll interpret the law, and we apply it. And a lot of what the Supreme Court does, a lot of the cases that we don't talk about at, at Cato here are actually just statutory interpretation questions of the bankruptcy code or things like that that aren't terribly politically charged and don't break down ideologically. So yes, you're just asking the court to tell us what does the law say and how should we be applying the law? Jonathan Gruber most recently has has uh, recanted or at least apologized for saying what he said. And as we all know in politics, a gaffe is when you accidentally tell the truth. He referred specifically to the opacity of this law, the lack of transparency, and said that that really was a key feature of the law. I'm glad you specified because I, I, I wasn't sure what comments – you meant when you said he was apologizing or, or, or uh, backing away from something because if you'll recall, it was revealed recently that in 2012, Jonathan Gruber was telling audiences, not just one, not just off the cuff, but telling multiple audiences as part of his book tour that if states don't establish exchanges, then the residents don't get tax, tax credits. They don't get those subsidies. So that kind of breathed life or like, you know, more life into these challenges that we've been talking about. about. But he also admitted in October 2013 in a video that just surfaced recently that uh, the, the entire structure of this law was designed to deceive the American public. You could, if you wanted to provide universal health insurance coverage to people, you could just tax everybody and give subsidies to the sick or tax everybody and provide everybody a single payer plan. He said that that sort of transparent taxation and government spending never would have flown. The voters would have rejected it. So he and other Obamacare supporters wanted some form of universal coverage, but they knew the voters would reject it 
if it were transparent. So they came up with the most complex, opaque Rube Goldberg scheme that they could, all to pull the wool over the eyes of the American people. And he admitted that in that video. And he said, call it the stupidity of the American public, but it worked. It had to happen in order for us to have this law. I wish it were otherwise, but uh, I'd rather have this law. And so what's remarkable about that is actually his honesty, because when I first heard about that, it didn't surprise me at all. I thought that everybody knew that, uh, that that's how this law was was designed and why. Uh, but uh, he was being honest about how it was designed, which really makes him the most honest of all the architects of this law. So I'm not as out, nearly as outraged by what Jonathan Gruber had to say as I am with the, the silence of every other architect of this law and their complicity in that deception. And the irony of the comments within this case, as Michael pointed out earlier, that when if you if this law was applied as written, is the way we say it should be applied, if you're living in a state without an exchange, the law suddenly becomes a little bit more transparent because you're not getting those credits anymore and it suddenly is pretty clear to you how much this law actually costs. And one of the things that he pointed out in the, what they were trying to hide in the law, and actually I think the biggest mistake that they made in this law in drafting it and selling it is they never sold it as a redistributionist law. They never sold it as a law that was going to transfer payments from younger, healthy people to older, sick people, and your, your insurance would have to go up so you could pay for people who were sicker than you were. They, people don't think that is what this law does. But if you live in one of these states that you're not going to get the, the subsidy, it'll be very clear to you that it's exactly what this law does because your insurance will be incredibly expensive. So, uh, Michael Cannon, this has been a long process for you. Uh, you and Jonathan Adler have been writing about this for how long? Three years now. Three years now. Three plus. Uh, so once this error uh, was discovered in the law, we'll use air quotes there, error was discovered in the law. Feature. Feature. Bug feature <laughs> 601. So uh, once this was discovered in the law, what was the process that you uh, went through uh, with respect to dealing with states, state legislatures, and uh, other officials that essentially were charged with potentially implementing parts of this law. Well, I learned about this feature of the law from Jonathan Adler in August of 2011 after I had already been spending months or a year at that point trying to discourage states from implementing the law because that could, by, by frustrating its implementation, that would make it easier for Congress to repeal the law and help get people better, more secure health care than Obamacare would, would provide. So uh, when I when I learned about that from when I learned about this feature of the law from Jonathan Adler, I folded that into the arguments that I was making to states because this feature of the law would ina really enable states to force Congress to reopen the law, and that I think is the most pernicious part of the Obama administration's attempt to rewrite the statute. They weren't; they're not just spending money they're not authorized to spend, although they are doing that. They're not just taxing people they're not authorized to tax, although they are subjecting almost 60 million Americans to unauthorized taxes. In my mind, the worst part about this is that this law, which is the only one that could have passed Congress, passed by the skin of its teeth, gave states and voters in those states the ability to block it and force Congress to reopen it, maybe even repeal it. The president disenfranchised those voters when he d decided to spend this money. He told them, your vote doesn't count. And I think that's the most offensive part of this whole, uh, of this whole issue is that this, doesn't, this, this isn't just taxation without representation. It's not just an executive branch agency exceeding its authority. 
it's tampering with democracy and the political process on a scale that's even larger than the IRS targeting of Tea Party groups. When will the Supreme Court hear this case? And, uh, you know, what are what are some of the details of it? Well, we're looking at about March, probably. We're, we're looking at, again, a, a June uh, finish, as, as often as the case. Uh, June is very busy, especially in recent years, where we'll see the ramifications of what happens. It'll be an interesting uh, an interesting argument. It'll be, I would say, it's going to be a little bit more boring when, when the media covers this than people expect because the judges, the justices, and the lawyers are going to be talking about statutory interpretation questions, which are fairly dry. They're not going to be talking about rights to health care. They're talking about how to read laws, how to figure out how to apply laws. I doubt that it will be that dry because if you look at, for example, the dissent in Halby at the D.C. Circuit, uh, that dissent... Uh, spent a fair amount. It's, it began, uh, Halbig ruled for the plaintiffs that, that did side with the government, began by attacking the plaintiffs' motives and said this is an attempt to gut, as opposed to uphold, the Affordable Care Act. And so I think that uh, if there's a ruling for the plaintiffs at the, at, at the Supreme Court, there won't be any discussion of statutory interpretation. One side will be pointing out that the Supreme Court just ruled that the president violated the law. The other side uh, will be pointing out that heart will be arguing that heartless judges are going to be denying health insurance subsidies to four million Americans who are currently receiving them. When really, I think the blame uh, for that lies squarely at the feet of the president because he didn't have the authority to issue these subsidies in the first place. And uh, Treasury and IRS officials have admitted to congressional investigators they knew they didn't have the authority to do this. I expect a little bit more decorum for the justices, but we'll see. And you brought up the extra. Oh, I thought you meant I thought you meant the media and how uh, it would be. No, I mean the, the justices in the actual right. argument. But well, the really interesting thing is we're going to see the smear campaign. We're already seeing it start. We're already seeing the the raising this to saying that the justices, the conservative justices, are going to take away your health care, the right, the pressure we saw in the first Obamacare campaign. And then what we're going to see after that, if we do win this, and I do think that there's an over 50 percent chance that we're going to win this case, which I didn't think that there was an over 50 percent chance on the last Obamacare challenge, uh, then we're going to have to talk about what the next steps are. And that's when it gets really interesting because we might be able to reopen the law. We might be able to get the debate back, the, the despondency we had when we lost the first Obamacare case. We might be able to bring those back and actually get a, a Congress to debate these, this law and whether or not it can work. And have the debate we should have been having in 2013 after 36 states said they would not establish exchanges, but that the president prevented us from having because he tried to expand the powers that this law gives him. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Trevor Burris, a research fellow at the Cato Institute. You can, of course, follow all of these events as they move forward through the Supreme Court at our website, cato.org. What's a bootlegger without a Baptist when it comes to public policy? Why he's little more than a naked aggressor against the public interest. But when they agree, they can be a powerful coalition to shroud self-interest in the cloak of public good. Adam Smith is co-author of Bootleggers and Baptists, How Economic Forces and Moral Persuasion Interact to Shape Regulatory Politics. He spoke at the Cato Institute in October. We went back, um, appropriately enough, to uh, another Adam Smith you may be more familiar with, who talked about uh, not just economics in the wealth of nations, but about um, moral sentiments in his Theory of Moral Sentiments book. And one of the things Adam Smith talked about in that book is how much 
we have sort of deeply embedded, um, he didn't use the phrase genetic coding, but it is, a genetic coding of other regarding, right? Our relationships to one another provide powerful incentives in how we cooperate, how we respond, how we appreciate and approve of certain things and disapprove of other things, how we're willing to take cost on ourselves to punish people um, because we just don't like it. Of course, after Adam Smith, we have evolutionary theory and experimental evidence that shows the same thing. One of the great insights from experimental economics is um, how bad economists are at predicting actual human behavior uh, in a lot of instances. Uh, people behave not, uh, they do not behave uh, in a strict rational choice manner all the time. One of the things we do is we tend to cooperate a bit more than, a, um, than the rational choice framework predicts. Uh, and we're also, as I said, we're willing to bear a cost to punish people in a way the rational choice framework doesn't predict. All right, so what is all this evidence leaning to? Well, it's leaning to the fact that, again, we have a deeply embedded public spiritedness that the Baptist is kind of poking at. There's a Baptist element in all of us, in other words, that, for better or worse, we can't get rid of and shows up in politics, in the political arena, like anywhere else. But how? Well, here's where the problems start. So we have this other regarding instinct. It works very well in our private lives. It's how we get along with one another. It's why at least most of us are not jerks all the time, right? But um, in the public arena, it gets a little misinformed. It gets a little distorted as it goes through um, different institutions and so forth. So one of the ways of bringing this out is using one of my former professor's ideas, Brian Kaplan's, of rational rationality. So people, you know, are fairly rational in their private lives, but as he would argue, fairly um, dumb in their public lives. Um, we're easily led um, down rabbit holes and in support of things that are actually not against our interests. Now, the earlier theory of rational ignorance says, look, who has time for politics, right? I mean, obviously, you all have time for politics, and that's, that's great. Um, but we have to admit, this is, this is probably a room of fairly unusual people um, relative to, to the average person even walking around the United States. So most people are going to be fairly ignorant and are going to be sort of led, um, I won't make the joke as if by an invisible hand, but as by some hand towards the Baptist. But what the Baptist wants, again, is not necessarily really in the public interest because, of course, the bootlegger is there uh, to guide things in the other direction, all right? So Baptists provide a cloak to bootlegger activity uh, and one that, in a lot of cases, if not most cases, makes the public worse off. Okay, and then finally, it also shows what happens when you don't have that Baptist. If you don't have the cloak, if you don't have any kind of tapping on our heartstrings or pulling on our heartstrings there, the bootlegger is going to be short an argument in the public arena. Okay, so let's actually, um, let's look at that with some of the new episodes we look at. So um, one of the things we, we examine actually in that chapter is Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street in a way could be called uh, a Baptist without a bootlegger. So, you know, there's a lot of different things that Bootleggers and Baptists has been targeted at environmental, uh, environmentalism, tobacco, alcohol, et cetera. But we wanted to take on some of the new things. So Occupy Wall Street is so interesting in that there were a coalition of forces that wanted to do something for the public. And I believe that's kind of why uh, the group became so powerful so quickly, at least in the public spectacle and the media and so forth. 
but it didn't really go anywhere. And one of the reasons is there really wasn't a coordinator. Okay, there were, don't get me wrong, there were people behind Occupy Wall Street. Obviously, there were a lot of people writing publicly and trying to coordinate it. Uh, but we have to agree, I think, that it did not become as powerful as that body wanted it to. And I would argue again, because there was probably not sort of the bootlegger or some sort of interest coordinating that public affection uh, into a particular channel. Um, another new episode is marijuana legalization. This is, um, I, I obviously teach at uh, a college, so this is, this is one that appeals to my students. So one of the things that's so interesting about marijuana legalization is who is the bootlegger? Um, medicinal marijuana is the bootlegger. And if you look these things up, you will find that medicinal marijuana um, producers heavily, heavily, heavily lobby against uh, marijuana legalization. Right, so it almost seemed like too good to be true when we found that example, but it's true. Um, and so you ironically have things like school teachers and uh, minority groups representing pro-legalization uh, and then medicinal marijuana actually uh, being anti. So again, very strange developments over that particular issue. Um, what we say in the book, because this is obviously ongoing, is that um, the bootlegger Baptist coalition has only been semi-effective because the Baptists are kind of cut down the middle on that issue. Um, and so you've seen success uh, in legaliz legalizing it in some fronts, not so much in others. The Troubled Assets Relief Program, this is something that we've actually uh, done some work in uh, public choice for, um, and we expand on that in the book. So. TARP is, is many things, and I, I imagine it's been, it's been spoken of in this forum and in other groups that you've seen uh, time and time again. So um, I'm not going to bore you with like, you know, an over, overview of the, of the bailout, um, but just point to what our kind of niche is in describing it, and that is TARP is bootleggers without Baptists, okay, bootleggers without Baptists. So regardless of what you consider TARP was originally for, it eventually evolved, especially with sort of the second wave of bailouts, into a rent-seeking mechanism for smaller banks. You had a lot of banks um, that did not necessarily need the credit getting access to it anyway. Some could argue because they were pushed by the Fed. Others could argue that, again, it was, it was rent-seeking versus rent-extraction. But regardless, the mechanism changed from what it was originally intended to be. But it didn't last. Right? It didn't last. TARP is no longer with us. Um, you know, AI, even AIG's paid back the money, right? Everyone's kind of abandoned that mechanism. But why? I mean, we can say, well, because it ended, because it was supposed to. But, you know, you can, you can say that about a lot of things, a lot of organizations that were supposed to wind down and don't. So why did this one uh, wind down so quickly? Can we argue it did not have Baptist appeal? The most we could find for people who were appealing for TARP to continue and so forth were unions. And in this day and age, unions just do not exercise um, the kind of moral sentiment that they did in the past. So again, a very interesting um, sort of counterexample of what happens when you don't have a bootlegger and Baptist coalition. Okay, finally, we talk about the Affordable Care Act uh, or Obamacare. Um, and as I said, this is something of a new order of uh, bootleggers and Baptists where you have coordination from a central organization. In this case, the Obama administration uh, and human health, uh, specifically human health services. We are going to see, I think, in the next 10 years, um, a radical change in how healthcare is provided in a way that's going to be hidden to most people. And those of you who are familiar with this, with this area, we now have uh, more networks in terms of providers 
uh, sort of more network interest in what is defining these networks or who should be in this network and so forth is human and health services, or at least a lot more guidance than that group has performed to, um, to, these, uh, to these networks in the past. And so we're implementing, we're seeing again a new stage of implementing a coordinated interest across bootleggers being, of course, insurance groups, big pharma, um, hospitals, and then Baptists, all these people who are wanting health care reform and so forth. So this has become somewhat, of a car somewhat more of a cartelized industry because of this development. Experimental self-driving cars have successfully operated more than 700,000 miles on American highways. Such cars will be on the market by 2020 and will radically transform the 21st century. Randall O'Toole discussed the benefits and pitfalls of driverless cars at the Cato Institute in October. Already four different companies have received licenses to operate self-driving cars on an experimental basis in California and Nevada, and a number of other companies have uh, said that they're working on self-driving cars and have demonstrated them in various forms. Uh, and Google in particular has published a lot of its uh, demonstrations of videos of, of self-driving cars dealing with things like getting around uh, traffic detours, dealing with bicycles, dealing with obstructions in the road, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think the important thing to understand, if you aren't really familiar with the technology, is that self-driving cars have all the computing on board. They are not connected to any central computer that's telling them what to do. Uh, it's all on board, which means that uh, what is happening with the car is dealing solely with what the car sees and what the car knows about the area. Now, the implications of self-driving cars are, first of all, that we may see a major reduction in congestion because self-driving cars will have much faster reflexes than humans, and most congestion is due to slow human reflexes. Uh, we're going to see an expansion of mobility. Right now, only about two out of three Americans have a, a driver's license. Uh, this will ex uh, enable non-licensed people to travel just as much as uh, licensed people. I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be able to put my dogs in the car and send them to the vet. <clears throat> We're also going to see soon the introduction of cars that don't even have a human-driven capability. Uh, and so these cars will be specifically, or especially for people who don't have driver's licenses, Another major implication of self-driving cars is that it'll change the way we look at transportation. Right now, about half of all Americans say that their main constraint on travel is not cost, but time. Uh, it's not the monetary cost, but the time cost of travel. And with self-driving cars, that time cost largely goes away. You can surf the internet, you can play games with your children, you can train your dogs on board the in, on board the car uh, while you're traveling if you have a self-driving car. That means that that'll change how we look at, drive, self at transportation. And instead of trying to live in a place that's near to where we work or to where we do anything, we can have a uh, very, fairly remote home and have a long commute. When we want to get groceries, we just send the car to get the groceries. We don't have to actually send ourselves. 
Uh, we're also probably going to see a confluence of uh, self-driving cars and car sharing, and that uh, some people think that in the future all cars will be shared. I, I'm not quite so sure. I think a lot of people will still want to own their own cars, but people who don't want to own their own cars will be able to use car sharing, and that's going to change the calculus of driving. Right now, uh, most people, if they own a car, the cost of taking a trip in the car is their marginal or their variable cost, which is only about a third of the cost, total cost of car ownership. So if, if you're car sharing, the cost of driving is going to be the average cost, the total of the fixed and variable costs. That means you probably aren't going to drive as much or travel as much if you're car sharing than if you're not. That in itself may be one reason why some people are going to not want to car share. They're going to want to own their own car so they can reduce that uh, their marginal cost be the variable cost. But what are going to be the implications of uh, uh, self-driving cars on urban transit? Right now, we have uh, urban transit in almost every major city in the country. In fact, lots of little teeny cities and minor cities have urban transit. And yet, outside of New York, urban transit is a fair, plays a fairly minor role in public tra in transportation. Uh, in the New York urban area, about 32% of all commuting is done by transit. About 10 or 11% of all travel is done by transit. Uh, the next uh, highest is San Francisco at about 18%. These numbers are commuting, but when you talk about all travel, the numbers are about one-third of commuting share, which means in most urban areas, transit uh, carries only about 1% or 2% or less of all travel. It's pretty insignificant. Urban transit was mostly private before 1970. Since 1970, it's been nationalized or municipalized. And we've poured a, almost a trillion dollars of subsidies into urban transit. And we've seen per capita transit trips for urbanites fall from about 50 trips a year to about 40 trips a year. So it's not been a high success. Right now, uh, at one time, urban transit was mainly for people who didn't have cars. But right now, only about 4.5% of workers in America live in households without cars, and most of them don't take transit to work. Only about 41% of them take transit to work. So transit isn't even important for people who don't have cars, much less for people who do have cars. If you think low-income people are the main users of transit, well, it turns out uh, you're most likely to use transit to get to work if you earn more than $75,000 a year, uh, more likely than if you earn less than $25,000 a year. So when you subsidize transit, to some degree, you're subsidizing the rich rather than the poor. If you think transit is a good way of saving energy, well, it turns out transit saves hardly any energy at all over driving. If you want to save energy, you encourage people to buy more fuel-efficient cars, such as a Prius. If you think transit saves money, well, it turns out transit costs more than three times as much per passenger mile as driving. And so uh, uh, when, that's when you count subsidies, of course. Uh, we subsidize transit to a far greater degree than we'd subsidize driving. And that's in order to make transit appear competitive with driving, cost competitive with driving. So what happens when we take this heavily subsidized and largely failed transit industry and add driverless cars to the mix? Well, we look at Manhattan, where there's 2 million jobs uh, and, and about seven square miles, and three-fourths of them take transit. 
It's hard to imagine that we could substitute self-driving cars for transit. Rail transit is always going to be important for Manhattan as long as there's 2 million jobs in lower and midtown Manhattan. But that's the densest job market in America. The second densest is the Chicago Loop, where there's about 500,000 jobs. About half of them take transit to work. Again, we probably can't see self-driving cars taking all those people to work, but uh, it might help for some. Uh, downtown Washington has about 380,000 jobs. About half take transit to work. Uh, Boston has about 240,000 jobs. About half take transit to work. Philadelphia, 240,000 jobs. About half take transit to work. In these cases, I don't see self-driving cars as being an ultimate replacement for transit. However, that's it. That's pretty much the line. Those, six, those five or six cities are where transit really makes a big difference and where trying to get rid of transit and replace it with self-driving cars is just going to cause too much congestion. Uh, for most of those cities outside of New York, bus transit probably makes more sense than rail transit, but that's another issue. Then we go down to Atlanta. 173,000 jobs in downtown Atlanta, but only 14% take transit to work. So if we got rid of transit and we substitute self-driving cars, which are going to be have faster reflexes and have less congestion, uh, well, I don't think you're going to see any increase in congestion. You're probably going to see a reduction in congestion. Houston, 170,000 jobs, only 13% take transit to work. Denver, 120,000 jobs, 20% take transit to work, but that's not going to be big enough to, uh, of a market to support transit in the, in the future. So basically, outside of five or six cities, I don't see transit as being a viable alternative to self-driving cars and car sharing in the future. Recently, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs General Martin Dempsey said, quote, we are living in the most dangerous time in my lifetime right now. He added more recently that the world is more dangerous than ever. But is this accurate? The new Cato book, A Dangerous World, assesses that idea. Christopher Preble, Cato's VP for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies, discussed the book in October. There were moments after the conference as we were pulling together the various chapters and commissioning a few new ones when I had a sinking feeling that this was a foolish enterprise. <laughs> after all, the world looks uniquely dangerous. Um, if you focus on the dangerous parts, obviously. And, and there were particular moments as this book was being worked through. You know, for example, Russia annexes the Crimea, uh, sent proxies into eastern Ukraine, so-called Islamic State doing its thing, rampaging through Iraq and Syria this summer. Moments like that, episodes like that, seem to make it all almost absurd to argue that the world is not very dangerous. Uh, then I reminded myself, and I remind you all today, that the contributors to this volume do not dispute that there are dangers in the world. There are, there always have been, and there always will be. But the fact remains that one's chances of dying a violent, premature death are at their lowest point in human history. Human beings everywhere are living longer, healthier lives, and Americans are particularly fortunate in this regard. And that last point bears repeating. The subtitle of the book 
threat perception and U.S. national security is as important as the title. When we think of the litany of security threats that Americans worry about, some are rather familiar. We still worry about war with major states, or we worry about being drawn into wars with minor states. We worry about the proliferation of nuclear weapons, mass casualty weapons, especially, especially nuclear weapons. And then there are new worries, uh, from cyber and crime and cyber crime to threats to our environment, the air we breathe, the water we drink. Um, some would accord even higher priority to new types of threats, higher even than the threat of physical harm that typically dominates the attention of policymakers in the military. We shouldn't stop, they would say, we shouldn't stop at ensuring that people merely live, but that they also live well. So by the standard of human security, some argue we are doing less well, that there are threats to human security. Others disagree. Two chapters in the book engage that debate. There's also the question of economic security. Uh, some fear that a war could cripple the international economy or that the mere threat of war could disrupt global trade and commerce, including the world's oil supplies. This concern, at least today, is the justification, of course, for the U.S. military's forward presence in much of the world. And this posture is oriented around stopping possible threats before they materialize, the argument being it's not a dangerous world, but it would be if we were not there. Several chapters in this book address these questions, these economic questions, and the broader questions about grand strategy as it relates to economics. Collectively, they conclude that the patterns of global trade are far more resilient than the pessimists envision. War between major trading partners is highly unlikely, and even if it were to occur, trade flows between non-belligerents would not be disruptive, or at least not for very long. And while war itself has many horrific effects, the cost that Americans pay to stop all wars are unlikely to be outweighed by the benefits. Exaggerated fears of distant conflicts could even prompt the United States to fight wars that pose no direct threat to US security and to spend too much on the military, which in turn weakens the overall economy, which we should remember was the point in the first place. So why are we so fearful? Uh, it could be that the confluence of old and new threats contributes to the widespread perception that the world is more dangerous than it has ever been. Uh, true, many of these dangers has, have always been out there. The Roman equivalent of Al-Qaeda were the assassins. Even nuclear weapons have been around for decades. Uh, but the combinations, Al-Qaeda with nukes or cyber terrorism, seems particularly new and thus particularly frightening. Some of the contributors to the volume uh, get at these issues too. For example, these threats aren't as new as they might seem. Meanwhile, our perceptions are inevitably distorted by probability neglect. We focus a lot on the nature of the danger, but miss or at least misperceive the likelihood that it will occur. Uh, I seriously doubt that everyone will agree with every chapter, but that's really the whole point. Uh, we've sought at least to engender a debate, a discussion, around what is a question. Do we live in a uniquely dangerous world? The alternative, the one that I believe and fear guides our approach, is to start from a presumption of certainty. We do live in a uniquely dangerous world, and therefore, we must do X, Y, Z. The ivory tower is changing. New educational options are popping up all over, including online classes, for-profit institutions, and competency-based programs. How should federal policy deal with this fast-changing landscape? 
Neil McCluskey assessed these changes at the Cato Institute in November. So some of the good news on uh, American higher education is definitely it's internationally respected. You know, if you look at the top destination for kids who want to study uh, abroad, this country is where they go. Uh, it's highly accomplished. We have lots of Nobel Prize winners in, in college universities. Lots of patents come from college universities. There's a lot going on in American higher education. It's very dynamic. One of the reasons I think it's very dynamic is it is largely consumer-driven and has pretty autonomous institutions. Uh, unlike K through 12, where you have essentially government provision of a monopoly, one school is what you get. We do base this in some degree of competition, specialization, and schools having the ability to cater what they do to different populations of kids. Uh, and I shouldn't say kids. See, that is a natural slip people make, but of course it's not kids anymore. It's all sorts of people of all sorts of at different ages who need different things out of post-secondary education. So within sort of even traditional higher education, we had this sort of specialization to some extent. You, know, you can think about there were liberal arts colleges, there were big public universities, you had lots of different majors to choose from. And now you can move beyond these traditional school types as we've talked about. Uh, you can go to the MOOCs, you can pursue competency-based education, etc. So What's the problem then with higher education? Because ordinarily, uh, I don't have good things to say about higher ed. The problem is massive subsidies that fuels uh, price inflation and it fuels a great deal of overconsumption and waste and misallocation of, of resources. So it's great to be consumer driven. It's a big problem if you heavily subsidize the choice of those consumers. Uh, the first problem, of course, is huge inflation in prices. I don't need to go over this. Most people know it. I'll just give you some quick numbers. Uh, we know that tuition fee, room and board inflation in those prices has greatly outpaced ordinary inflation, household income, and things like that. In just the last 10 years, tuition fee, room and board at private four-year schools adjusted for inflation rose from $33,098 to almost $41,000. That's a 24% increase after inflation. At public four-year institutions, uh, it's gone from $13,376 to $18,391, and that's a 37% real increase in the price. But something else has grown even faster than that, and that is aid per, per student. Uh, so if you look between academic year 2002-2003 and 2012-13, Aid per full-time equivalent student rose from $9,701 to almost $15,000. That is a 54% leap. So that increase is greater as a percentage than we've seen in the tuition fees room and board. What that strongly suggests is there is a connection. And it's almost certain that what that aid does is, one, enables colleges to raise their prices at faster paces than they otherwise would. Doesn't mean they're just raising their price to raise their price. They have things they think they'd like to do that are, they think are important, but they have to get the money from somewhere to do it. It's also encouraged students to demand things that often have very little to do with academics. So you've seen big increases in, uh, in, in amenities. Uh, I talk about, because it's always interesting, there's been sort of a mini explosion in water parks to be found at colleges and universities. Uh, I've I long talked about the University of Missouri just because it's the first one I was aware of. They have something called the Tiger Grotto where you can, you can get on a raft and you go around a lazy river and you can get people in Hawaiian shirts will come and serve you, you know, uh, like vitamin drinks and things like that. 
not to be outdone, Southwest Missouri State, which I think actually has changed their name recently. Now they have a new water park because you're competing with the University of Missouri. They got a water park. You got to have a water park. Uh, and then Texas Tech has a, a brand new water park, which from what I can tell from the pictures is even fancier than those found in the state of Missouri. Uh, what those suggest is there's a lot of money in higher education that is not directed at what higher ed is for, and that's academics. Um, the, the more systematic evidence we have than just the water parks, although clearly the water parks are all I need to mention, uh, is you can look at things like uh, non-completion. Non-completion is a huge problem. And part of the reason, no doubt, that we have non-completion is this federal government in particular will give money to people to go to college regardless of their degree of motivation, what they want to study, what their background is. There's very little uh, that you need to show that you are prepared and motivated to do college-level work. And so we have these 150% uh, of expected time rates of, of graduation. Understand this is for first-time, full-time students finishing at the institution where they begin. So this probably is kind of the worst-case scenario, but we have plenty of reason to believe that the, the reality isn't all that much better than worst-case scenario. So, the best of the four-year institutions for completion rates within six years, now I'm talking about four-year degree programs, are private nonprofit schools. Only 65.4% of those students graduate within six years. That's the best, so two-thirds are finishing. Um, the best for two-year programs or certificate programs is actually at private for-profit schools where you see 61.7% completing within 150% of expected time. Again, now that's less than two-thirds. And, and community colleges, you see a completion rate, again, for first-time, full-time students who finish there. So there, is, there are transfers. But that's only 20.2%, so one out of five completes. This is a huge problem, and it's heavily subsidized by taxpayers. And then we have to talk about what about the people who finish. According to the New York Fed, but this statistic's been incited other places, about a third of people with a bachelor's degree are in jobs that don't require that credential. So very roughly one out of every two people who enter college are going to finish, very roughly. And then about a third of those people are going to have jobs, and many of them ultimately careers that don't require that credential. That is a whole lot of higher education being used or being consumed that ultimately isn't used. Uh, the Fed also reports that the quality of those jobs is getting worse that people with bachelors uh, end up getting that don't require it. In the 1990s, about a half of people underemployed were in decently paying career track jobs. By 2009, only 36% were. So they are not in jobs where, you know, there's sort of a set progression and you have a fair amount of job security. Uh, and then we see the same problem in people getting advanced degrees. So uh, according to the Center for College Affordability and Productivity, in 2008, 59% of master's holders were in jobs that didn't require that degree. Uh, and 22% of PhD holders were in jobs that didn't require that degree, but they assumed that you weren't underemployed if you had a PhD and were in a job that the Bureau of Labor Statistics said required a BA or higher or a master's degree. So probably that 22% greatly understates underemployment for PhDs. Okay, so how about those people who do finish and they get a job that requires their degree. Well, the next sign of, of huge, actually, I think, overconsumption of higher education driven by subsidies is credential inflation. Basically, it used to be that we had an economy 
where, you know, if you had a high school diploma, that was a signal of something powerful about you, that you were, you know, you were able to accomplish things, uh, that you probably had a good work ethic, basic things that an employer could infer from your having a high school degree. Uh, now, it seems that you know, we eventually moved to a bachelor's degree, but bachelor's degrees have become fairly ubiquitous. And so now we're, the signal is becoming a master's degree or higher. Well, what's the evidence, though, that this is caused by people just needing some signal about their basic um, personality traits, you know, the work hard that show up, versus they're actually going to college to learn things they can only learn in college and that are in demand in the economy. Well, we, we don't have absolutely comprehensive data, but we have a lot of really telling, I think, uh, pieces of evidence that suggest there's a lot more sheepskin out there, but not a lot more skills and abilities to go with it. So you could first look at the National Assessment of Adult Literacy it's only been done twice, unfortunately, 1992 and 2003. But what it showed were big decreases in the, in the percentage of people with bachelor's degrees and advanced degrees who were literate in things like prose literature, document literacy, and quantitative literacy. So in other words, we have a lot more people with degrees, but the degree doesn't, it, it, there's actually less uh, literacy, at least, in all sorts of dimensions for, on average, the person who has it. If you look at earnings between 2000 and 2012, only the weekly earnings of people with advanced degrees rose. Even those with bachelor's degrees were essentially stagnant and they might have dropped a little bit. Then you have everybody who follows higher education knows Academically Adrift uh, by Aram and Roxa, and it talked about great decreases in how much time kids spend, or students spend studying. Um, they're, 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 decreases in critical thinking scores, although I think critical thinking is something that's very hard to measure. But they provide evidence that actually what's going on in the schools is less about learning and academics. And then finally, the HR firm Burning Glass just reported a few weeks ago, they did sort of a survey where they looked at job announcements in newspapers, and then they looked at BLS data of what the people in those kinds of jobs, what credentials they had, and they found in many, many cases, most of the ads said you must have a bachelor's degree or you must have some other degree. But in many cases, the people in those jobs currently don't have such degrees, and there was no evidence or little evidence that the people they were trying to get needed to have any different skills or ability than the people already in there. That suggests that this ubiquity of, of credentials essentially enables uh, employers to say, well, of course you have to have this, or we wouldn't even consider you, even though having this, the degree, doesn't signify any greater skills or ability. And so I think that the ultimate problem here is that student aid fuels all sorts of people making decisions about what kind of higher education they're consume, or I should say post-secondary education, and they tend to both consume uh, degrees where they go to a school that offers all sorts of things that are not directly about academics, and then many people pursue degrees that aren't necessarily useful to them or ultimately useful to society. <music> What is judicial minimalism, and why do we even need such a theory? Judge Diane Sykes from the Seventh Circuit Federal Court argues that judicial minimalism, which is not really a theory, is characterized mainly by deference to political branches and avoidance of foundational constitutional issues. She spoke at the Cato Institute's Constitution Day event in September. 
We should probably begin by defining our terms. Modern judicial minimalism as a distinctive theory of decision-making is usually credited to Professor Cass Sunstein, who coined the term and is the leading academic expositor and proponent of this approach to judging. Sunstein proposes that judges should generally avoid broad rules and abstract theories and attempt to focus their attention only on what is necessary to resolve particular disputes. He advocates a practice of saying no more than necessary to justify an outcome and leaving as much as possible undecided. Minimalist judging of the Sunstein variant proceeds along two dimensions. First, judicial opinions should be narrow rather than wide, deciding the case at hand while avoiding pronouncing rules for resolving future cases. Second, judicial opinions should be shallow rather than deep, avoiding large theoretical controversies and issues of basic principle, relying instead on incompletely theorized agreements that enable judges with diverse philosophical commitments to join in bottom line judgments, leaving the more fundamental questions of principle undecided. Modern minimalism is justified primarily on pragmatic grounds. Minimalist decision methods, so the argument goes, account for the limitations on judicial competence in particular the limits on judges' ability to accurately assess the consequences of a decision one way or the other. Narrow, shallow decisions reduce the risk and cost of error. Minimalist decisions are also said to be more pluralistic, demonstrating respect for diverse perspectives by leaving fundamental matters of principle unaddressed. Minimalism recommends itself for other reasons, too. It claims to promote stability and predictability, to maintain flexibility for future courts, and to empower democratic deliberation by giving political decision makers room to maneuver and respond to constitutional questions left open by the Supreme Court. On the surface, the theory sounds like it's limited to process values, but it's not. Substantively, minimalism starts from a presumption of deference to the political branches and self-consciously avoids invalidating acts of the legislative and executive branches, either by upholding them on the merits or by using various techniques for avoiding constitutional questions. The point of defaulting to deference is to recognize the limited role of the federal judiciary and to make large space for democratic self-government. Minimalism also advocates a strong version of stare decisis. Consistent adherence to precedent promotes stability and predictability and is said to preserve the court's institutional interests. On a more philosophical level, modern minimalism promotes itself as a hedge against judicial supremacy. It calls on judges to go slowly and in small steps. The emphasis on incrementalism and gradualism evokes the philosophy of Edmund Burke, who viewed governance as a practical endeavor, guided by experience, and was, uh, was skeptical of grand political theories. Burke counseled deference to long-settled practices and traditions tested by experience and the collective wisdom of society accumulated over generations. He held the common law in high regard. Of course, the founding generation didn't need a theory of judicial minimalism. The common law tradition, as it was understood and practiced at the time, was itself essentially minimalist. And important minimalist features are embedded in our constitutional design. The common law, as known and applied in the courts of the new American states, was based on English customary law. And in the Blackstonian tradition, was found, not made. 
The philosophical terrain was also different than it is now. The framers inherited a strong natural rights tradition. But they also understood that because natural rights principles are quite general, today we would say underdetermined, the judges of the new federal judiciary, like their counterparts in the states, would be called upon to exercise a substantial element of judgment in individual cases. As a constraint on that authority, Article III limits the judicial power to cases or controversies that are explicitly judicial in nature. The framers rejected a more active political role for judicial review by deciding against a council of revision. In addition to the constraining effect of the case or controversy limitation, the framing generation generally understood that federal judges would follow long-established norms of judicial practice. They would be bound down by rules and precedents, to paraphrase the Federalist Number 78. This was thought to be a sufficient check against arbitrary decisions based on will rather than judgment, to paraphrase the Federalist again. Now, that was the old form of judicial minimalism. These understandings were swept away by the legal realism of the 20th century. The new judicial minimalism responds to the realist idea that appellate judges engage in discretionary lawmaking when they decide cases, including and especially cases of constitutional interpretation. If judges make constitutional law, then we need some theory or method to guide them in that enterprise. Now, no one in this room needs to be reminded of the normative constitutional theories that have been in contention since the New Deal. But I'll remind you anyway, because it helps to place the new minimalism in its proper historical perspective. The living constitution school of thought held sway in the decades that spanned the Warren Court and the early Burger Court years. This evolutionary approach authorized judges to interpret the core principles of the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment to reflect contemporary values and to adapt the Constitution's broad language to address modern conditions and problems. In practice, this theory produced the rights revolution of the Warren Court, continuing under the Burger Court, and was aggressively interventionist in implementing social, political, and legal reform by judicial decree. The results were in some cases a virtue and in others not so much, but in all cases the theory empowered the judiciary to deploy the Constitution as a malleable instrument of social and legal change at the expense of the democratic process. The conservative counter-revolution began in earnest in the 1980s and initially focused on restoring the practice of restraint understood as judicial deference to the policy choices and value judgments of the political branches. In the early years, the primary concern was to stand athwart the jurisprudence of the Warren Court yelling, stop. Apologies to William F. Buckley. But the emphasis on restraint did not address how the Constitution ought to be interpreted and applied. That would come later, as originalism was recovered, developed, and refined. Your presence here at a Cato seminar suggests to me that you don't need a primer on originalism, so I'll just summarize. The animating principles of originalism arise from the legal justification for judicial review. The judicial duty to decide cases according to law, including the law of the Constitution. Briefly stated, the basic theory is this. Because our Constitution is written, 
unlike the British Constitution, and because it is supreme law adopted by the people as the original sovereign that brought the American government into being, constitutional interpretation ought to be grounded in the public meaning of the text as understood at the time of ratification. On this view, constitutional adjudication begins with an inquiry into the meaning and scope of the provision in question based on the text and the structural and historical evidence of its original meaning. Anchoring constitutional adjudication in the text, structure, and history of the Constitution is thought to best legitimize the power of judicial review. We all know our Marbury versus Madison. The judiciary's authority to set aside an otherwise valid law in the name of the Constitution arises by inference from the judge's duty to apply the law, including the law of the Constitution, in individual cases. Originalism holds that the interpretive inquiry into the law of the Constitution ought to be grounded in and tethered to the principles the framers and ratifiers fixed in its text and structure. Originalism first established a foothold in the legal academy and eventually arrived at the Supreme Court. Professor Sunstein's minimalism is a response to the rise of originalism and is, in fact, meant to check or counter it. Minimalist theory uh, occupies some common ground with what has come to be known as judicial pragmatism, which is a flexible approach to judging that focuses on the consequences of judicial decisions. The aim of pragmatism is to achieve good overall outcomes, although its practitioners differ in their account of what is a good outcome. Minimalism and pragmatism are overlapping theories of consequentialist judging. Both mix law with practical politics. This brings me to my final point about modern judicial minimalism. The theory is flexible about when judges should proceed minimally. It explicitly acknowledges that not every case calls for a minimalist ruling. As Sunstein candidly puts it, the pragmatic foundations of minimalism suggest that constitutional law should not be insistently or dogmatically minimalist. In other words, the theory contemplates that there are times and places in which minimalism is rightly abandoned. There's a non-exclusive multi-factor test for determining when it's best to issue a minimalist decision and when it's best to go maximalist. But you all probably guessed that already. It should be clear from this description that although minimalism is an approach to judging, it's not a theory of constitutional interpretation. Unlike originalism, it's not a method for determining the meaning, scope, and application of the structural constitution or the liberty guarantees in the Bill of Rights or the 14th Amendment. Instead, it's a theory of deference. Judges should defer to the political branches of government and to the decisions of prior courts, except when they shouldn't. It's also a theory of avoidance. Judges should not make broad, uh, broad pronouncements on foundational matters of constitutional principle, except when they should. Got that? I'm oversimplifying, of course, and I do plead guilty to a little bit of exaggeration for emphasis, but only a very little bit. There's more to this theory as an academic matter, and other strains and versions of minimalism do exist. This is not meant to be a comprehensive review, but it's enough for our purposes today. As you've probably gathered, minimalism can and has been criticized for offering no genuine guidance to judges concerning how they should proceed in constitutional cases. As Professor Tara Smith has noted, the instruction to the judiciary to minimize your impact is hollow. 
Critics have also attacked minimalism for privileging the doctrinal status quo. Professor Sai Prakash has noted that whereas originalism privileges the original public meaning of the Constitution, minimalism, because it is precedent-focused, tends to privilege the views of the Warren and Berger courts. Other critics have argued that by promoting shallow decision-making, especially in cases involving broad constitutional principles like free speech and equality, the theory permits judges to smuggle in their own unstated and unexamined ethical assumptions and preferences. And as I've already noted, the pragmatic flexibility in minimalist theory gives us no rule or standard for deciding when it should apply and when it should not. For my part, and you've probably already guessed this already, I side with the critics. A unifying theory of minimalism is both unworkable and unwise. We have well-established doctrines to ensure that judges do not unnecessarily decide constitutional questions. And the norm of analogical reasoning has a natural constraining effect. In other words, minimalism is inherent in standard judicial method. We do not need a heavy theoretical thumb on the scales. What's much more important is how the traditional sources of law and legal interpretation, text, history, canons of interpretation, precedent, and other well-established tools of the judicial craft are prioritized, weighted, and applied. At a time of deep political polarization, the modesty and consensus values claimed by judicial minimalism seem especially attractive. Restraint is indeed a personal and judicial virtue. Judicial mistakes on constitutional questions are extraordinarily difficult to fix. Arrogating too much power to the judiciary distorts our politics and undermines our ability to democratically shape and alter our basic legal, social, and economic institutions. But strong avoidance and deference doctrines are not the answer. They may serve prudential or political concerns, but they are not necessary to enforce the separation of powers, and indeed may undermine that critical feature in our constitutional design. The court's legitimacy arises from the source of its authority, which is, of course, the Constitution, and is best preserved by adhering to decision methods that neither expand nor contract, but legitimize the power of judicial review. The court's primary duty in short, is not to minimize its role or avoid friction with the political branches, but to try as best it can to get the Constitution right. This holiday season, visit the Cato Institute's online store for gift ideas including new books, free e-books, and Cato merchandise. Cato sponsors receive a 35% discount on all items, including Cato Institute apparel and accessories from Land's End. Visit cato.org store today. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next year. <music>